Lord God, you are good. We praise you because you are good, and you can only do good. Holy Spirit, help us this morning to see all that comes from your good hand is indeed good in its fullest sense. And all that you will is for your glory and for our good. Cause our hearts to rejoice and be convicted by your good word preached this morning. Help me to preach your goodness. Father, by your spirit, may we think much of Christ and little of ourselves. Amen. So stay in Ruth, because that is where we're going to be. Again, that's page 262. Something that has really amazed me over the last few years specifically is how common it is nowadays to have a doomsday plan, right? All across America, individuals and and families spend concerted efforts and time and money preparing or prepping, right, for chaos that they are convinced is right around the corner. What is the goal in their efforts? Why are they doing this? Well, at the heart of it, I believe it is that we, especially here in America, right, are so comfortable. We have such security and we have so many safety nets that even if something that may or may not happen tomorrow or, or 20 years from now, even then people are doing everything they can and think of to extend their comfort and extend that security, right? Build a bomb shelter so you are safe and secure underground. Store up 300 pounds of rice so you will never go hungry. Whether you've done this yourself or not, I'm not necessarily trying to convict you on this point, you may have thought, at least to some degree, do I need to prepare? Am I secure enough? When we look at the story of Ruth, of Ruth, there was no safety net. Okay? There weren't these same securities that we get to just enjoy here. When a famine struck the land, as we saw, you had to consider or not uh, whether you're going to relocate your entire family, right? When your husband died, the government or another aid didn't come in to offer some sort of assistance or support. And I want us to be careful that these safety nets around us today aren't, aren't eclipsing the reality that we are to rely on the Lord just as much as the people during this time of Ruth. The more I read Ruth, the more amazed I am by the author's beautiful writing, not just in the book's structure, but also in their careful choice of words, right? Nothing is wasted here. It's a a short book, and it moves quickly, so you have to be very mindful of every single detail given. I want to encourage each one today to take some time and read through this whole book. It won't take very long, but you'll see that for yourself. The theme of the book as a whole that I want us to keep in the back of our minds, right, the the overarching kind of theme, the the meta-narrative of Ruth, is that the Lord is faithful to redeem, okay? This is what the story of Ruth is best known for. Boaz, we know, is going to come in chapter 2, and he will be for us a type of Christ. He will be a kinsman redeemer, right? That's That's the key term that we see there. In other words, when we look at Boaz... We are to see characteristics and shadows of the perfect Messiah to come, right? The perfect Redeemer to come. This is something we'll consider a little more fully later on. 
The main point, though, for chapter 1, what I want us to focus on this morning, is that God is always good. And I, and I hope that you heard that so much as we're preparing for God's word preached now. In this fallen world, surrounded by so much pain and suffering and sin, we can forget this essential truth. And Satan wants us to. He wants us to despair. He wants us to doubt. But what I want us to see in our text this morning is that even if we cannot see it, we must remember that God is always good. I've broken our text into three main sections. If you see in the, in the uh, chair Bibles, right, that it's, it follows those same divisions, so it'll be easy for you to follow along. The first five verses, uh, we're going to look at Naomi's hardship. This, though, is sweetly followed by the second point, which is Ruth's loyalty, and that's verses 6 through 18. That's going to be the bulk of our time this morning. Finally, I want us to, to conclude our time evaluating Naomi's return in verses 19 through 22. So we have Naomi's hardship, verses 1 through 5, Ruth's loyalty, 6 through 18, and Naomi's return, 19 through 22. Let's look now at Naomi's hardship. Our story begins in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Here we have our time frame. Though the book of Ruth would have been written much later than the time of the judges, right? this opening phrase sends our mind reeling with scenes from the book. Think of Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And what we see in these great figures is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, being faithful despite his people's disobedience. In fact, when you're talking about disobedience, the, the entire book of Judges ends in this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book ends. And it's here, in these days, that this man from Bethlehem leaves the promised land with his family and goes to Moab. As we see in verse 2, Look there, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And he does this, why? Because there is a famine in the land. The author is immediately reminding the audience of the brokenness and the sin in this fallen world. Genesis 3:17 says this is the Lord speaking to Adam and Eve and to Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life right 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 from the beginning of time there is this brokenness though it's not explicitly stated but considering the context, right, in the, in the days when the judges ruled the earth, it's likely that this famine is punishment on the people of Israel for doing what was right in their own eyes. And Leviticus 26 affirms the holiness of God in this way. Specifically, verse 18 through 20, it says, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, right, this is the Lord's, the Lord's words, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sin. I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Right? You're not going to be harvesting much from iron and bronze. 
and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And this famine we see is so severe, it has caused Elimelech to completely relocate his family. What a decision that is, right? As husbands and fathers, you called to provide and protect. This husband and father is doing what he sees as best to lead his household. Scripture does not tell us if this was a sinful choice or not. It's not for us to speculate. But I, I don't want to over-speculate, right? And, and the, the reason for doing that, right, the one main reason, I want us to remember that God allows us to undergo hardship, and he is still good. We cannot be like Job's friends who believed that obviously some sin was committed because you are suffering in this way. Okay? Rather, in humility, we must bow to the sovereign hand of God in his good providence and trust that what happens in life is best. If you notice, this chapter begins and ends in Bethlehem, but there is great pain in between. What is the significance then of Bethlehem and Moab? Because they leave Bethlehem to go out to Moab and then they come back to Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem we know is in Judah and we are told towards the end of our Old Testament that it is out of Bethlehem that the Messiah will come and our story today is a very small piece of that beautiful story to come. Do you remember who the Moabites are? More specifically, how they originated. Genesis 19, specifically 30 through 38, tells the story of the incestuous acts of Lot's daughters toward their father. Now, like our story today, and what we'll see through the rest of the book of Ruth, right? Lot's daughters were trying to be a kinsman redeemer for their father, but they were seeking to do this in a very unrighteous way. In that passage, we are seeing a clear distinction then between the seed of the woman in Abraham and the seed of the serpent in Lot. Prior to our passage in Ruth, Scripture has painted the Moabites as one of the utter stenches of the nation of Israel. And that is where this family will spend their indefinite futures. Okay? And so just as we're taking in the setting of our story, right? We, we've got our, our, our context, right? Our background then tragedy strikes this household. Verse 3, look, it tells us that Elimelech, the husband, the father, the head of this house, the one who brought them into this land, dies. His wife, Naomi, is then left with their two sons. And then we see the consequences of Elimelech's actions. His sons take women to be their wives, specifically Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now, Deuteronomy 28.32 condemns Israelites from marrying foreigners. And there's a very, very real, very serious reason why. Because they are to be a holy people set apart. So then after 10 years, both Naomi's sons also die. And the author really stresses the turmoil at the end of this opening scene. See that in verse 5. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. They left the promised land seeking provision, and the world did not deliver it to them. Instead, they are met with barrenness and death. And it is in this grievous, bleak state that we turn to our next section and more fully are introduced to our second major character. Now that the stage is set, now that we have our background, 
Let's look at Ruth's loyalty. Verses 6 through 18. Again, this is going to be kind of the bulk of our, of our time, so, so stay with me through this. Our next scene then shows Naomi in the fields of Moab. You see that there in verse 6. She is working because there's no one providing for her and her two daughters-in-law, right? Her, her husband died and her two sons died. She is alone. There's a reason why in 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs the young pastor to take a list of the Christian widows in the church and to make an intentional effort to care for them. Widows in this time were totally dependent on others to help them. They had no protection or uh, provision. And so after 10 years of living in Moab, suffering great hardship and loss, hope for Naomi shimmers in the distance, right? She hears that the Lord Yahweh has visited his people and he has provided them food. The famine is over and the presence of the Lord has blessed his creation among his people. Look in verse 6. You see that the Lord had visited his people. Specifically, that word visited is to mean like the, the Lord has come to the aid of or has intervened on behalf of. What good news, right? Naomi is stirred. She's stirred to leave Moab. And you could say that she is at the end of herself. Ten years of hard work and difficulty without any blessing. She is leaving and she's going back home. She's going to Bethlehem. We must notice that the Lord did not visit Moab. No, God uniquely visits his people and gives them food. God is good and he providentially uses this provision of bread to draw Naomi back into a place of blessing. Make a note of this. I want us to use this to shape our prayers when we ask the Lord to give us this day our daily bread. We are asking the Father to use his good provisions to draw us closer to himself. In our Baptist Catechism, question 111, it asks, what do we pray for in the fourth petition? Answer, in the fourth petition, which is, give us this day our daily bread, we pray that God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and, that, and enjoy his blessing with them. Do you see how our good God providentially uses these natural causes to bring about his will? Naomi does not know what is before her, but she knows there is blessing from the Lord among his people. I want you to consider for yourself then, are you trying to do things on your own? Are you toiling and striving for your good portion of good things? Do you have hope in that for your future? Let me encourage you. Our only hope is to give up our own efforts. Our only hope is to go to the presence of the Lord, to go to Christ. He has intervened for us. He has, he has come on, up on our aid, right? He is seeking to care for us and provide for us and he has done this primarily by taking on the wrath of God in our place and now he is intervening for us as our mediator in heaven before the father there is no sweeter place to run to so we need to stop trying to earn this love even if we're already a Christian right we still think in our minds we have to earn this love we have to continue to do good right for our own righteousness sake no 
We do look good because of Christ's righteousness. We need to run to him, and he will receive us over and over. So according to verse 7, Naomi, along with Orpah and Ruth, right, they leave Moab, and they head for Judah to Bethlehem. It's unclear exactly how far they travel before Naomi stops, and she, she turns around and she commands her daughters-in-law, right, turn back, return to their hometowns, specifically to their mother's house. Do you see that in verse 8? She, she tells them to go back to their mother's house. Typically in the Bible, when we see a phrase like that, it's, it's father's house. I'm going to my father's house, right? The few times we do see this mother's house, right, it's in the context involving marriage. <clears throat> um, an example of this is in Genesis 24. Rebecca runs to her mother's house to tell about the marriage proposal she has just received. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because it would seem that Naomi is releasing her daughters-in-law to go and remarry. And this is all the more emphasized in this sort of blessing over them. See in verse 8, because they have dealt kindly with Naomi and stayed with her even after her husband died, Naomi gives them her blessing to go and remarry and be properly provided for. Naomi then furthers this with a second blessing, granting them rest in the house of their future husband. You see there at the end of verse 9, Naomi displays that, that with this command, right? And it's done out of love for them. In her own eyes, she sees this as best for them. She loves them. She wants them to be provided for, right? She kisses them, and they all weep together. What we are seeing is this tension inside of Naomi. She knows and has even communicated that these good things, kindness, rest, marriage, and with that provision and protection, right, these can only come from the Lord. Yet Naomi has lived outside of the blessing of God for so long and endured such hardship that she believes what is best for her beloved daughters-in-law is to go back to Moab when really the best thing for them is to go to the Lord who has visited his people. Are there things in your life, good things, that God has blessed you with, but you have elevated them to a place that is now drawing your heart away from the good provider himself? Rest and work and family and friends and on and on our list can go of good things that we rightly enjoy in this life. But God, who gives all things in love and grace, he alone must be worshipped. Look at verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Orpah and Ruth do not want to leave their mother-in-law. or their mother And this is understandable, right? They have left their homes to marry Naomi's sons. They have grieved over them together. And they have collectively been working to provide for themselves. And all of this taking place over a span of 10 years, right? That is, a, that is a deep relationship they have. But Naomi knows better. It does not make practical sense for Naomi to have her daughters-in-law follow her. She cannot provide for them in the way that they need. So she rhetorically asked them in verse 11, Why would you come with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? The Torah, right, we know is God's law. This makes, there's provision for this 
just specific situation in Deuteronomy 25. Verses 5 and 6 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Ah, so a kinsman, right, a family member, can redeem the name of his brother so it isn't blotted out. You see how the Lord has provided for that? Unfortunately, for Ruth and Orpah, their husbands don't have any other brothers, right? So Naomi then answers her own rhetorical question from verse 11. Look at verse 12. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Right? Just in case they think maybe, maybe there's this other brother out there. No, there's not. And I have to give birth. And are you really going to wait until I give birth to then marry this, this, this child? Right? This reminds us of a similar situation when Abraham's wife Sarah was promised a son. And she doesn't believe it. It does not make practical sense. She's too old. In Genesis 18, it says, They, right being the angels of the Lord, said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So she laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Right? Doesn't that sound like Naomi? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God is good. And he is going to provide for Naomi and Ruth in a way very different than how he provided for Sarah and Abraham. This is one of the reasons why biblical narratives are so helpful for us, right? These, these Old Testament stories, right? God isn't providing in the same ways, but we see him still providing, and nothing is too hard for the Lord. So when you see God in his goodness providing for your brother or sister, rejoice and be thankful because he has provided for them. And if he doesn't provide for you in the same way, rejoice and be thankful because he's providing for you, but in a way that is best because it is according to his will and not yours. This is why it is essential that we remember God's goodness. If you ask, God, why will my child not behave? Or why haven't you opened their eyes to see their need for you? God, why have I miscarried again? Why is my pain chronic and last night and day? 
Why doesn't my body work rightly? I'm so uncomfortable. Lord, why did he have to die so young? God, why won't you let me die? I'm ready to go. Why do I keep drowning in the same sin over and over? When will you deliver me like you said you would? We are all too familiar with the brokenness of this world and the effect sin has on our hearts and minds. When will it end? As we saw in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to his suffering regarding this thorn in his flesh and how frequently he cried out to God to deliver him from his pain. As Mike read in verse 9, Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Why? Why would you boast in your weaknesses? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you content? Are you content in your persecutions? Are you content in hardships? Or are you seeking the quickest way out of them? God is good. And though at times our eyes are dim and the black clouds hide the sun, it's still there. God is always good. If you are in Christ, then he is your good shepherd. He sees and knows your pain. He sees and knows the heartache you feel. The suffering and the hardships are meant to draw you closer to him. Know that he is working all things for his glory and your good. So how will the Lord provide for Naomi and Ruth? What Naomi does not know, as she is returning back to Bethlehem, telling her daughters-in-law to go back home, is that there's a man in Bethlehem, a relative of her husband, right? A kinsman, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. In our hopeless despair, we forget how good the Lord is to provide. In times of sin or pain and loss and grief, right, our sight becomes clouded, and we often cannot see what the Lord is doing in us or around us. What a blessing it is, then, that we are part of a church. God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ with the same spirit in them that is in us, who are in our lives to point us back to Christ when our eyes are clouded and we cannot see clearly. We have that privilege to remind one another of the goodness of the Lord and all that he is. Be patient with those who are suffering when their sight is clouded. When you're suffering, it's not your goal to be unfaithful, right? Listen to one another and try and determine where their eyes have been covered. When someone undergoes surgery, right, the surgeon doesn't just walk in and begin performing surgery because they know something is wrong and they'll figure it out once they've got you open, right? No, they have a consultation beforehand and they talk with you so as to work through precisely what is needed and what the next steps are. That begins with listening. Love others in their suffering by listening well and then applying the sweet balm of Christ. Naomi is without that right now. 
So understandably, right, her perspective is warped. Look in verse 13. It is exceedingly bitter for me, or to me, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has got out against me. Again, we are not told if this suffering that Naomi is experiencing is consequences because of specific sin, but we do know that she is a person, a sinful person, living in a broken world. But Naomi is bitter, and she is tired, and she has suffered greatly. And here she is blaming the Lord for all of her problems. And I don't want to come down too hard on Naomi, right? She has truly suffered greatly. And yet we'll soon see that there are true immaturities in this woman that must keep us from elevating her too high, okay? Paul communicates really well this perspective that we ought to have. In Romans 5, uh, the first five verses there, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see how good the triune God is in sustaining us and providing for us? We are to live in the Spirit and rejoice in suffering. And that is so antithetical to what the world today is telling us. We are being told to run from any and all difficulty and hardship, right? To numb our bodies so we don't feel the brokenness of this world. Remember, though, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. God does not waste our suffering. He sanctifies us by it. Okay? I'm going to say that again because I forget it way too quickly. God does not waste our suffering. He sanctifies us by it. So what is the response? Will Orpah and Ruth go along with Naomi's perspective? Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What an emotional verse. Orpah, who does not want to leave, has determined that it makes the most sense and has forced herself to go. Ruth, crying, clings to her mother-in-law. Orpah's decision to leave is not to condemn Orpah, right? The the author's not wanting us to, to scowl at her, right? Rather, she is to act as somewhat of a frame around the portrait of Ruth, right? Orpah, what she did made sense. So now as the reader, we see, okay, Orpah, she did what seemed to make the most sense, but Ruth stayed. What will happen to her? Will it work out for her if she stays? Look at verse 15. Here we are being affirmed of the current perspective uh, perspective of Naomi, right? Looking at, at Orpah leave to return to her people and her gods, this is best. And she wants Ruth to, to follow her sister-in-law. And this is fitting when we consider the larger context of Israel. Remember, this is in the, in the time when judges ruled, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Naomi's understanding and perspective of God's working 
was commonplace among the people of Israel. See, she says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Follow her. She's doing the right thing. This makes sense. And here are maybe the most famous words from the book of Ruth. This beautifully poetic, faithful commitment. One that expresses love and loyalty and is sealed with an oath to the Lord. Ruth says in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Do you see how serious Ruth is about this? She isn't just trying to make her weeping, bitter mother-in-law feel a little better about herself. Ruth is committed to Naomi. She is also committing to a life of widowhood. We must not forget that should she go with Naomi to Bethlehem, she has no actual ties to her anymore. Their connection was through marriage, which ended by death. She would be a Moabite living among Israelites, a stranger and an alien. The question then naturally arises, was Ruth a true follower of God or just incredibly loyal to her mother-in-law, right? We can read this verse and know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was her God. Now, she may have made that commitment at an earlier time, but the faith is communicated here. And this is demonstrated in this commitment to Naomi. Consider that Naomi has, or Ruth has just listened to her mother-in-law, the native Israelite, say that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. And Ruth says, your God, my God. The New Testament passage that comes to my mind when I consider the statement of Ruth is Hebrews 11, specifically 13 through 16. Speaking of those in the Old Testament who were considered faithful and righteous, it says, These all died in faith, not, received, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, right? Ruth had the opportunity to turn and go back. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. And this idea of the Lord preparing a place for us is something we'll turn to a little later. I do also want us to consider Ruth in another sense. What we are seeing here is not just a faithful commitment from Ruth to the Lord, but it's also a wonderful example of a godly woman. Listen carefully, when we aren't considering the whole of marriage, right? There are other passages in scripture that speak to that more clearly and directly. But specifically here, the seriousness of commitment to one another. 
I think this passage is particularly helpful, especially as we are learning that this character of Ruth, right, and we'll soon see how faithful she is as she engages with such a godly man like Boaz, okay? By the time the two get to, to one another, the, the way the author has, has described them, you're like, yes, <laughs> finally, right? So I want to speak specifically to the women of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. If you are married, demonstrate this kind of faithfulness to your husband. Yes, even though he is sinful and makes plenty of bad decisions. And if you are not yet married and desire marriage, pray that the Lord would provide a godly husband that you can love in this way and consider if this kind of submissive faithfulness is in your heart. If you are not married and do not desire marriage, praise God. Christ is the perfect one, and this devotion is ultimately meant for him. Serve the church, then, with the same serious love and commitment. And mothers, model this carefully for your daughters, so that they will grow up seeing the beauty of this. Now, husbands, care for your wife, right? Love her in an understanding way. Make it easy for her to do this with joy, so that she will blossom into her God-given role. Let her see Christ as the one she is ultimately following, not you. Well, Naomi is left speechless, right? Seeing Ruth's determination, she likely has no emotional energy left to insist on them splitting ways. So they remain silent, and the, the two of them go on their way to Bethlehem. So let's turn now and look at our final section, Naomi's return. Verse 19 says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Mahalon and Chilion, left for Bethlehem. Now Naomi and a Moabite woman return, and the whole city is stirred. Surely this cannot be the same woman who left us 10 years ago. This could have been an excited reaction, right? Possibly initial joy for seeing uh, a fellow townsman who has returned after such a long time. Regardless of how the people felt, Naomi's despairing words set the mood for this final scene. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Right? You'll see in your footnote there, Naomi means pleasant. Right? But Mara means bitter. She is letting them know, I'm no longer pleasant. I am bitter. Why? She has to give the, the townspeople who are, are seeing her again for the first time in a long time a reason why she is this way, why she is taking on this new identity. Well, they can obviously see that she does not have her husband or her sons with her. And Naomi explains why. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice, she accuses the Lord of doing four things to her. He's dealt very bitterly with her, has brought her back empty, has testified against her, 
which is right to uh, bear like a judicial pronouncement, right? And has brought calamity upon me, right? So, so dealt bitterly with her, brought her back empty, testified against her, and, and brought calamity upon her. But also look how she identifies God. It is Almighty, the Lord, and then the Lord, and then she finishes, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. God who is omnipotent and eternal, whose sovereign hand is over all creation to do according to his good will, and the Lord who keeps his covenants and is faithful to his people. This is who she's talking about. This is the Almighty Lord. She has such a distorted view of who God is. Be careful that you do not let your emotions and feelings explain your theology. Rather, allow your theology to stir your heart to worship. Look at verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi, no. Ruth is not nothing. Yes, Naomi has really suffered loss. But she is not rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord, who has provided her this daughter-in-law that has shown her tremendous love and honor and loyalty, much to Ruth's own sacrifice. Naomi's words remind us of Job's, but Naomi does not have the maturity that Job did to come to the same conclusion, right? Job 1, 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Speaking specifically to the older members in our congregation, and I will let you decide if you're in that category. (laughs) God has given you a literal lifetime of experiences in this world seeing his sovereign hand working over all things. Do not keep that to yourself. Don't listen to the world when it tells you that you put in your time, right? And now you get to kick back and relax, slacken your grip on life. Just enjoy those last years. That is a lie from hell. Finish the race. Keep the faith. There are so many young men and women in this church that need your counsel. They need your encouragement. They need your prayers. Pray for us. Pray with us. Lead us in prayer. Show us how to pray. Disciple our minds with the word of God. Call us out in our sins because you can see our blind spots. You can see our immaturities. Model Christ for us. Finish well then. When Christ calls you home, rest. Receive your crown of glory and bow down in eternal worship. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is what the church needs from its elderly members. And to those who are not in that older period of life, right? Seek out this kind of discipleship. Don't wait for someone to come to you. There must be a mutual seeking out of one another to encourage and stir up one another to Christ. Anne Dutton was an 18th century Baptist who suffered great illness as a child. And then when she got older, she married a a godly man, right, 
um, only four years after she was baptized. And then her husband died very soon after they got married. And a couple years later after that, she remarried another godly man, and he went away on business, right, for the church that they were at. And on his way, his ship sank, and he also died. Twice widowed then, Anne Dutton lived 18 more years before she died. And towards the end of her life, right, um, one of her friends uh, who was herself suffering reached out to Anne, and Anne encouraged her in a letter in this way. My dear sister in Christ, as it is the pleasure of your heavenly Father to still, listen, continue you in the furnace of affliction, do not think the time long. This momentary affliction is to prepare you for glory of an endless duration. She goes on to say, Remember your afflictions as a dream which passes away, that are here one moment and gone the next. And while they last, oh, the sweet, the strong supports of the everlasting arms. What can we not do and endure through Christ who strengthens us? Your beloved with you in everything, you need fear nothing. Glory in him and in his promised grace, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For it is made in infinite faithfulness and will be will be productive of earthly supplies in your greatest necessities, a full joy of eternal glories. Your afflictions are all measured out. How comforting is it to know the Lord knows exactly how many afflictions we will suffer in this life. Anne says they are measured out in kind, degree, and duration by infinite grace. And not one more shall you taste than what shall be for God's praise and your bliss. Do you hear the perspective she has in this? She finishes, Therefore, give up yourself with the sweetest resignation to your all-wise, all-gracious Father's dealings. For all shall work to your salvation. Endure the cross and look to the crown. The former is light and short. The latter, ineffable, eternal weight. Be patient with those who are suffering. Right. Let us make every effort to encourage with those who are suffering, to encourage them in the same Christ-centered way. One way that we do this is by singing to one another. Right? We did that this morning, and we're going to do it again. Connie Dever wrote the song, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but I do want to read the refrain. It's a very practical way we can apply this kind of Christ-centered encouragement. The refrain goes, So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. The final words spoken by Naomi in this leave us uncomfortable. She is bitter. She is not pleasant. The Lord has dealt bitterly with her. In the final verse of 22, right? Verse 22 there acts as a summation of where our two main characters are. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. 
But then we see the glimmer of hope. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. My hope is that we as a church are so familiar with the whole story of Ruth, so familiar with the Old Testament, so familiar with the New Testament, that when we read this scene, it sends our mind reeling with sweet pictures of the Lord's provision. We will see this mainly through Boaz, as he's intended to point us to Christ. It is going to be through Boaz that this kinsman, right, this kinsman redeemer of the clan of Elimelech, right, that the Lord redeems this family and provides for his people. And at the end of this book, at the end of Ruth, Naomi is going to sit a baby on her lap and care for it. God has brought Naomi and now Ruth back into the promised land where he's going to provide for them and not just with bread. Here again, we marvel at the providence of the Lord. God does not restore to Naomi a husband and sons, but he is still good. God does not provide, or God does provide Ruth a husband and a child, and he is still good there. Orthodox 26 of our catechism, right? Question 26. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer. God's providence is his almighty, remember Naomi referring to him as the almighty, his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Amen? Do not forget what the Lord is doing in your life, especially when things are difficult and painful. Pause and reflect on the awesome character of the triune God and pray that he would align your heart to his good will. As we close, I want us to consider this epic scene in Acts 11. Peter is in Jerusalem. He's gathered together with the church there, and he's retelling this amazing thing that the Lord has just done. He tells the church there of how the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his whole household. Okay, but isn't that happening all over the book of Acts? Yes, but Cornelius was a Gentile. And after Peter shared the gospel with them, Cornelius believes and is baptized. And so Peter is telling the church in Jerusalem this, and in verse 18 we see their response. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What we know of Ruth is that the Lord providentially brought Ruth out of the wilderness and into the promised land, and he was her God. And this paints a shadow, of, uh, a shadow for us of what is to come in Christ. He will call us out of darkness into himself. Listen to Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Indeed, this is the hope we have this morning. God will bring us out of this sinful and broken world to dwell with him for eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray.